1: Hello, and welcome back to another exciting episode of the New Books Network podcast. I am very excited. We're doing something a little different today. So for my familiar listeners, I need no introduction. Um, But for everyone else who's joining, because maybe you've heard about our amazing author today and you're familiar with their work – Uh, My name is Lee Pierce. I'm a visiting assistant professor at the State University of New York at Geneseo. I use she, they pronouns, and I'm a rhetorical critic, and I work in the Department of Communication, as well as being an avid reader of really terrific books, which is, you know, why they gave me a podcast. And I'm actually, we're doing a lot of crazy stuff today. So I'm also joined for the first time by a student as a co-host, because it was the student, Haley Wigston, who brought the book to my attention as something that she thought I should read. And, you know, I was you know, why not come and do the interview? So Haley, do you want to say hi real quick?
2: Hi, everybody. Um, I'm Haley. Um, I'm a student here at Geneseo. She, they pronouns. And I'm really excited to be on today talking to our author, Derek Gaunt.
1: All right. And why don't uh, you tell us why you love this book and why you decided that it was worth a whole afternoon of ours together to spend time with me to talk, to talk, to, to talk about the book. And then we'll kick it over to um, Mr. Gaunt to see what he has to say.
2: Yeah. So this book is great. It is dedicated to actual skills that can be used to increase your tactical empathy and leadership and definitely create a more productive environment. And it uses um, the fundamentals of hostage negotiations leadership, which is NHL or sorry, HNL. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Uh, Really great read if you're trying to be better at leadership and empathy. And I'd
1: like to add that the reason – this this book at first for me felt like a strange fit for language because, of course, typically what we do on this podcast is uh, rhetorical analysis, close textual analysis. And so I, I read the book kind of with a, a skeptical eye that this might be a better fit for someone else. But I'm very impressed with this book as sort of what we call a trade book because it's not the academic – it's not strictly academic in the usual sense. It's got much more of a practical application while also sort of drawing from theory because um, Mr. Gaunt is a unique combination of – teacher slash professional slash writer that's really interesting. But also the way that language gets coined in this book to create new types of thought. So tactical empathy. And there's a bunch of other these key phrases that are kind of gonna come up throughout. So instead of just sort of rehashing things we've heard before like, oh, you should be empathetic or oh you should listen. I mean all of these words get kind of new connotations and they get new adjectives. And so I came away with this with this really cool new critical tool to think about how people interact with each other, especially in, like, high-stakes situations. So it is a great fit for the channel and language, as well as several others, and I'm very excited to welcome Mr. Gaunt to the show. Uh, do you want to go ahead and say hello?
0: How are you? Thank you for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure for me to be here. I'm really excited. Great.
1: Well, I've been awkwardly calling you uh, Mr. because I actually forgot to ask if you like first name or proper address.
0: Yeah, I work for a living, so you can Okay, that's together. what I
1: always tell people. If we're old enough to drink together, you can call me by my first name. All right. Well, um... <laughs> yeah. Is there anything that you want to add to our summary of the book, or why you think why you wanted to write the book to give people some value out of this?
0: Uh, well, you you encapsulated a lot of it. Um, it, it. The the motivation behind writing the book came from seeing all the other books that were out there, and uh, and they just didn't for me they didn't hit the mark. You know, as you noted, they say listen better, they say be empathetic, but nobody. Really showed you the practical steps on how to do it. Uh, everybody talks about the importance of of uh, emotional intelligence and leadership, but no one has yet come up with a simple to learn process on how to do it. And so that's that was the primary motivation behind it. Um, you know, it, it comes from the world of hostage negotiations, which is basically navigating difficult conversations and understanding. Um, the human nature response and once you get your head around that human nature response people become predictable and we've we've taken it out of the world of hostage negotiations and we put it into the world of leadership or I'm sorry into the business world for business negotiations and this is just a natural next step is how to um, inform leaders on the methods to not only stay true to Their aspirations stay true to the mission of the organization, but also create an environment where their downliners and their direct reports are going to, to thrive. And so, um, after sitting at a table one night thinking about all of the tactics and skills that we used when we were dealing with hostage negotiate, uh, hostage takers, um, it seemed like the logical thing to do. So I put pen to paper and there you have ego authority failure.
1: Say um, I'm not typically a horn tutor, but I'm going to toot your horn a little bit. That we recently had a hire in the department, and he was um, he was a high stakes crisis respondent in Afghanistan for twenty. You know, gosh, I would say like probably twenty percent of the entire campaign. He was over there, and he does a lot of our business classes. And but he's you know he's a professional. I mean, he's he knows a ton about this stuff. But he decided to come into academia, and I gave him this book to read. And he, when he came back to read it, the very next day, I might add, this is a, actually an, an incredibly interesting read, and it, and it really flows very well and is easy to process, um, while also being, I think, astute and insightful, which is rare. He said, wow, this guy really knows his shit. <laughs> and I said, yeah. I mean, I wasn't going to give you a book. I hated. I don't know what you were. But, yeah, he's one of these people that's hard to please. Wow. So it, not to say your job is to please people who are skeptics, but I think it does speak to the quality of the argument.
0: Yeah. and And – you know, the techniques that we talk about in the book, you know, they were developed for cops. And, and I don't mean this to sound disparaging, but cops want things simple and they want things actionable. Uh, and I think that that's what speaks to the masses uh, because it's it's the, the techniques themselves are not difficult. What's di- difficult is getting your head around the counterintuitive nature of the skills. And that's what gives people the most pause, I think, is because it's counterintuitive, it's awkward. And because it's awkward, it makes us uncomfortable. And when we are uncomfortable as human beings, one of the things we want to do faster than anything else is to get comfortable again and to revert back to bad habits. It's easier to stay in a bad habit than it is to develop a new one. Um, And so simplicity was the name of the game when trying to articulate the message of the book.
2: And actually on this topic of, you know, feeling uncomfortable and getting out of your your comfort zone and how a lot of people just want to get the situations over quickly. um, Something that jumped out in the beginning of the book was what you call this 60 seconds exercise. And um, uh, can you tell us a little bit about how it captures what you want us to take away from this book?
0: Yeah. So the, the, the 60 seconds exercise, um, It's an exercise designed to show people what they're willing to compromise when they're painted into a corner, when they're put into an uncomfortable uh, position. And it also speaks volumes on how you deliver a message. And so in this exercise, um, I, I ask for three volunteers. And the three volunteers step out of the room. I brief the rest of the room on what's going to occur and what occurs in the 60 seconds exercise is, I'm a, for the purposes of the exercise, I am a bank robber. I don't have any other gainful employment. When I want to uh, put clothes on my back or food in my stomach, I rob banks. And in this exercise, I got caught. And each of the three volunteers has to negotiate with me. I'm inside the bank. They don't know how many hostages I have. They don't know how many accomplices I have. And they cannot negotiate with me drugs or alcohol, weapons or ammunition, uh, transportation, or an exchange of hostages. And each one of them come into the room one at a time. And the first thing I do is I have them, quote, ring the phone. And then I answer in a very aggressive tone. And I tell them, I want a car in 60 seconds or she dies. That's all I give them. And the tone that I use puts them on their heels to begin with. And more often than not, they will immediately start to negotiate with me how they're going to get me a car. And the takeaway from that is that when stress level is high, it puts us in that uncomfortable position and more than anything else as i stated when we're uncomfortable as human beings the first thing we want to do is get comfortable again and in that situation to get comfortable again they start to compromise they start to to break the rules they start to do things that i told them they were prohibited from doing and that's what emotions will do to your decision making and we get so caught up As human beings on demands, we get so caught up on threats, we get so caught up on negatives that we never try to go deeper and understand what's the motivation behind the behavior. The behavior is a threat. What's the motivation behind the threat? The behavior is a demand. What's the motivation behind the demand? And as hostage negotiators, that's what we try to focus in on. We don't get wrapped around the axle because somebody tells us they want a car in 60 seconds or somebody's going to die. Our job is to go deeper into the message. So when a guy says, I want a car in 60 seconds, what is he really telling you? What's the hidden message there? What's the underlying message? I'm asking you now. Now I'm interviewing you two.
1: Yeah, I mean what's interesting as a rhetorician because we don't use the concept of the underlying because we don't like the idea. And and I think you're gonna like this. I'm not gonna push back. I'm actually gonna just give you the way I would think about it, because we don't think of the superficial behavior as kind of this the fake behavior, and then the real one is kind of hiding beneath it. We think of them all as kind of on the surface, waiting to be read. And so actually for me, what's interesting here is not only Why are they coming into the situation with these behaviors and what is the threat really asking for? Um, But also, how am I coming at the threat unable to see what is there to be seen that would make me better able to negotiate this system, right? Because I'm going to bring things to the table, too, that are going to influence my choices and what I do. And of course, if I can't see with open eyes, I I go in underprepared.
0: Right. Right. And what's interesting about what you just said there is how many times you used the word I. Oh,
1: okay. I'm I'm, I'm here for it. What do you got for that?
0: I, 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 uh, I. One of the big takeaways from the book is it's not about you. And so our job as hostage negotiators, people who are going to engage in hostage negotiation leadership have to understand it's not about them or where you want to end up, your goal, your objective, it's about whomever you're engaged with. Now, that doesn't mean that you're not going to stay true to the mission of the organization. That doesn't mean that you're not going to uh, uh, continue to try to better yourself. Uh, But it's all in how you deliver the message. And when I talk about delivering the message, I'm talking about delivering the message in a manner that indicates that you're subordinating yourself to the other side. That you're deferring to the other side. Doesn't mean that you're never going to get to your goal and objective, but it's all about sequencing. To deliver bad news is to engage in a, in a difficult conversation. Well, yeah. You're going to have to make. I'm
1: sorry. And I go was going to, and I, yeah, you're right, because who's ever coming, and also people don't volunteer. I mean, people, nobody wakes up in the morning and thinks, you know, I have a lot of options today, so let's go do this. I mean, they wake up feeling desperate and unheard and not paid attention to. And I mean, I think. And that's the problem, right? Because if you enter into this space and reinforce a lot of those things, you've missed the point of the of the hostage demand in the first place.
0: Yeah. And so when I talk about going deeper, I'm talking about understanding motivation, driving forces, dynamics. Because you're right. In that situation, in any situation like that, the person likely didn't wake up that morning and say, I think I'm going to go to the bank and take a hostage. They woke up and said, I need money.
2: Yeah. And so with this, in your book, you talk a lot about what's called tactical empathy. And so is this part of um, getting through to those, those inner motivations?
0: Yeah. Tactical empathy is just demonstrating to the other person that you understand how they view the lay of the land. It's not emotional empathy, which is a a subjective state brought on by emotional contagion. That's why we never tell you, you need to walk in someone else's shoes. No, you don't need to walk in their shoes. You need to see through their eyes. You need to understand the impact of the circumstances on them as they see it, because it's not about you and your frame of reference or your perception. It's all about them. If they view something as stupid, as threatening, as unfair, then guess what? It is. And that's the way you need to engage them in any of those difficult conversations. Do um to find out. Do
1: people ever give you pushback on that? Because I'm I, I'm I'm good with that. I mean, I like the idea of a tactical empathy because I do agree. And also, when you ask people to be empathetic, you're inherently implying that that they should do something, they should feel their way into understanding the complexity of the situation. But our emotions are often reactionary. Um, but do. But do people ever tell you like, oh, well, tactical empathy isn't genuine? I mean, do you get that kind of a critique of this argument?
0: Um, Yeah, we do get that kind of critique because we are deploying it in a deliberate fashion in order to get a desired outcome. The two best purveyors of tactical empathy on the planet are hostage negotiators and psychopaths. We don't use it because we're necessarily nice people. We both use it because it works. Hmm and it starts with understanding that in a literal sometimes but more so in a figurative sense the person on the other side of the difficult conversation views you as a threat views you through a negative prism and as long as they view you as a threat or through a negative prism no meaningful dialogue is going to take place so you use tactical empathy to remove yourself as a threat that's number one number two um tactical empathy forces or encourages reciprocity because at some point as a leader you're going to have to draw your line in the sand you're going to have to state what it is that you're having this difficult conversation about and what you expect the outcome to be using tactical empathy on the front end of the conversation will encourage reciprocity on the back end of the conversation so that when you tell them they're not going to get the increase that they were expecting, they're, they're no longer going to be allowed a, a take home company car. Uh, vacation days are going to be cut. Uh, we're going to go to a mandatory 12 hour shift for the next three weeks. Um, they're They're less likely to give you pushback because you first took the time to demonstrate that you get what they're going through. And at the end of the day, I don't care what line of work you're in people love to have other people understand how they feel what they're going through their circumstances
2: and this this really i think ties in line with a lot of the the case studies that you brought up in the book and i think one of the most interesting to me was um this this story of mike and steve the the robbers of this pawn shop and so um Yeah, Mike was a was a young black man who had spent most of his life uh, starting as a juvenile in a state penitentiary. And um, then he he robbed this pawn shop and was caught and actually was um, in a hostage negotiation with um, one of your team leaders. So can you talk a little bit more more about that?
0: Yeah, I like to use the Mike story because. um, It's a great illustration of what it takes to actually put your goal and objective behind you and just focus on the person in front of you. And that's what we did with Mike. Immediately, uh, the team leader, Dana Dana Lawhorn, who's um, actually the sheriff now in Alexandria, Virginia. He put Mike at ease and he subordinated himself to Mike and he began deferring to Mike almost immediately. And he did that because he knew the benefit that it was going to uh, generate for us down the road. And And he understands what it means to sequence the conversation. And when I talk about sequencing, I'm talking about tactical empathy first, your goal and objective last. Many times people get it backwards and they want to state their goal and objective first. Leaders want to go in and tell uh, their team that this is what's going to occur, and then they work backwards and try to convince the team that everything is going to be okay and that he understands or she understands what they're thinking, what they're going through, where and if the sequence is flipped and that tactical empathy, empathy is displayed first, it makes getting to your goal and your objective easier. It makes the message that you're going to send, that difficult message that you're going to send easier for them to accept. And and, and Dana recognized that when he was dealing, um, when he was dealing with Mike. He could have gone in there and said, we've got the place surrounded. It doesn't make any sense for you to be in there. We want to get everybody out alive. So why don't you put the gun down and come on out? He could have started with that, but he didn't. That, that was his ultimate goal and objective. And we have never started a conversation with a hostage taker in that manner, even though that's our goal and objective. Never have we called in and said those words. We call in and say, it's not, mentally, we're telling ourselves it's not about us. It's about him. And it drives some people crazy. You know, when we're yeah, I was, I was talking Yeah, that was actually one of my questions was
1: if you could tell me why people. Yeah, because obviously it's I – mean, I'm not sitting here going, oh, yeah, I would totally do this. I mean, no, I would panic or I would – but I think – and two, I guess I was wondering if you could comment on two things. I mean, I think one is sort of a – what we'll call maybe a biological impulse to to just, I don't know, fight or flight kind of thing. But the other is kind of a rhetorical impulse in the sense that we – most of us learn how to do this stuff from cultural texts. And they're, they're, they mo- they don't model this very well. And so you have a, the work cut out for you to fight all of that schemata that people have built up from all this cultural modeling. So, you know, what kinds of resistances do you get when you tell people, why do they get upset when you tell them that's your advice? And then, um, where do you think that comes from? Uh,
0: just a, a lack of knowledge and a lack of understanding. Um, I'm, I'm not, uh, you know, I, my, my brain is pretty small. So, um, I don't, I, I don't come at this with a lot of, um, uh, academic knowledge. I come at it through experience, most people don't have that experience, most people haven't gone through the training and therefore um, you get a lot of pushback. You know, there, there are times when you get a, a a senior executive within a police department that wants to know why I'm talking to this guy on the phone about how he feels and how he was treated as a child um, when we know that he's inside and he's got a knife to a two-year-old's throat, it's because as I said earlier in the conversation, it's understanding human nature and understanding that people want to be understood regardless of the circumstances, understanding what stress does to your cognitive ability. If emotions are high, rational thinking is low. And if, if, if you start in an aggressive tone with anybody in any difficult conversation, you're going to run into trouble. And so people have been conditioned To um, solve the problems right away, to rush into problem solving, especially action-oriented paramilitary organizations like law enforcement. People call law enforcement when they're in in trouble and they need a problem solved right away. One of my biggest challenges is taking a detective or a patrol officer who raises his hand and say, I want to become a hostage negotiator and I got to reprogram them. Because from the time they leave the police academy until they become a negotiator, they've been taught that they're going to get into a car, they're going to listen to a radio, the radio is going to send them to a location, they're going to solve a problem as quickly as possible, write a report, mark back in service, and then do the same thing over and over again for the next 10, 11, 12 hours. Quick problem solving is how we've all been trained and conditioned, and, and that's where most of the pushback comes from.
2: And so how without this, you know, like, like perfect tr- or not perfect, but without this, like really, you know, great training that you get in like law enforcement and stuff like that, how can a person who doesn't have this type of training sort of work through these skills?
0: Um, it lays it out nicely in the book. Chapters 11 through 14 um, will tell you what the skills are and there are examples on how to employ them. And then it's just a bunch of low-stake practices. Um, Two of the skills that we use the most that give people the most trouble, but they're tremendously effective are labels and mirrors. If you guys go out today, after you get off of the call with me, if you go out today and start using labels and mirrors immediately, you will be the beneficiary of a boatload of information from the other person that you otherwise would not have gotten because why people love to have other people understand how they feel. And most people don't take the time. And if you don't believe me, go into your local coffee shop, order your coffee, ask the barista how he or she is doing, listen to their response, and just label the response. It looks like, it seems like, it sounds like whatever they just gave you. And watch how much more information you get. And they'll look at you like you have two heads because nobody has ever taken the time to try to understand their world, right? And they will vomit up a lot of information and be ready for the deluge because um, nobody takes the time. It's too much work. When somebody asks you how are you doing, that's a that, in the in Western culture that's just another salutation. They don't really care mm-hmm. most of the, most of the time. They just throw it out there as a way to say hello. But when you follow that up with a label, it looks like it seems like it sounds like, or a mirror where you just repeat back the last one to three words of what they just said. Watch how much more information because. In front of them now is somebody who who actually cares.
1: Yeah, I teach us some I teach uh, something which actually i'm I mean I'm thinking about restructuring the way I teach it, but when I teach interpersonal, um, i I started out teaching that to actually a bunch of uh, students who were in school, a lot of whom were nurses. So I tried to find a model of empathy of, of skill a skill set of empathy. That would especially speak to kind of their profession, and I found this really interesting uh, nurse model, N U R S E. And the first step of that model is to name the emotion, and what they mean by that is the person on the other end. You say like, "Oh, how are you doing?" and they're like, "Gosh, I'm really frustrated." You don't then say to them, "Oh, sounds like you're frustrated," because then they'll go, "Yeah, that's what I just said," but in fact, it's that it's that issue of translating it into some other word that. That, that accurately represents what they're saying, but makes them feel like they've been heard. And I always tell my students, if it works, be prepared because you don't want to go around doing this to people that you don't want to have positive feelings for you. So if you've got like a roommate that you're not super fond of, don't pull the nurse model because they'll keep coming back to your room because it's that rare that somebody looks at you and goes, oh, it sounds like you're saying that you feel um, like you don't have a lot of power. And then they go, yeah, it's exactly how I feel. So that's kind of that vibe that you're sort of picking up on.
0: Exactly. 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 Now, you know, they they, they say that they had a frustrating day and you you name it or you label it. It sounds like you're frustrated now. What that will will do, what that will do for them is make them think, you know, is this person running a game on me? Are they really that stupid? Um, But the flip side of that coin is it's not all bad. You've made the attempt mm. and and getting it right is not the key. Making the attempt to get it right is the key. And so even if you label something that's obvious, even if you label something that's wrong, you're still on solid ground because it's not your judgment. You're not making anything up out of whole cloth. You're taking what they give you, you repackage it, and you give it right back to them. And that removes you as that threat. Because as long as you're viewed as a threat, no meaningful dialogue is ever going to take place. And a lot of the, the leaders that I've talked to, a lot of the business negotiators that I've talked to are looking for that, that, that home run with these skills. And I try to encourage them to not think of it in terms of a home run or a knockout punch that's going to all of a sudden tip the needle in their favor. It's the cumulative application of the skills to get where you want to go,
1: um, do you one of the things I always have trouble when I read books like this because i I love everything and I want to practice it, but it's like I don't i mean, yeah, you can practice it in kind of like the coffee shop way, but i have do you have suggestions for how people might um, if opportunity don't don't present themselves is are there ways to put these skills into action? in sort of bigger stakes ways than, say, practicing on the barista, which is a great start. But also, I found myself kind of wanting to go do this and see what happened, but not being in situations where I felt like, as a learner, I could take the risk yet that might come with practicing these skills on a bigger scale.
0: Yeah, I, I caution against trying to practice it on a bigger scale. How long does it take you to develop a new habit?
1: Well, um, 66 days, right? Because they used to say 30, and then somebody said, no, it's really more like double that.
0: It's, it's about 66 repetitions. 67 repetitions. oh okay, okay. you got it you got it you, you got to get your reps in you've got to get your reps in so that it becomes second nature so that it becomes um almost like muscle memory and the time to get your reps in is not when you have skin in the game not when you know the stakes are high and you've got you know things hanging in the balance that are of critical importance to one side or the other low stakes practice is how we frame it And it starts with your family. It starts with the as I said, the barista, it starts with the person working the counter at the drugstore. And by your tenth, eleventh, twelfth rep, you're starting to groove that neural pathway in your brain. Those synapses are starting to connect together. Once they once they wire together, what do they start to do? Fire together. Start to fire Mm -hmm. together. Exactly. And and then it becomes now. You're at that point where you're actually listening, huh. listening for something. What can I mirror? What can I mirror? What can I label? Oh, this is a good opportunity. And, and by the time you get to your, at the end, about three weeks, six and seven reps, now you're doing combinations with labels and mirrors.
1: Ah. Well, and it's cool, too, because you're you know what you do in the book in this, in this piece of it, which I mean, it runs through the book, but kind of in the piece where you introduce this concept is you're taking something that previously we thought was unepathetic which is applying labels to people, right? When we think of like stereotypes and you're taking that concept and you're saying, no, it's not necessarily the practice. It's how you're using the practice and the kinds of labels you're doing. And so I really liked that flip to turning labels, which is sort of a natural, I mean, that's, that's always how people defend stereotypes. Well, it's, it's it's human nature to stereotype and you say, yeah, it is precisely why this should be something you're doing. And I thought that was a very clever shift.
0: Yeah. And it's, you know, um, the stuff is like the force. It, this stuff can be used for good or uh, or for evil. The difference between uh, manipulation and influence is simply what the intent of the speaker. Yeah. And and so you can actually. I mean, there are people out there that 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 use this stuff to get an advantage over someone else, and that's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to we're trying to lower that emotional aspect that they've attached to the issue, to the point where their rational thinking comes back up. In the book, I talked about returning them to the NFL, the normal functioning level.
1: you want to, oh, oh it, go ahead. I'm so sorry.
0: It's, it's, it's germane in hostage negotiation. It's germane in business negotiation. It's germane in having uh, difficult conversations with your colleagues, with your downliners, with your bosses. Because at the end of the day, take hostage negotiation off the table and replace the word negotiation with difficult conversation because that's all a negotiation is, a difficult conversation.
1: Okay. And then um, I think Haley – Haley and I were sort of uh, – we, when we met to talk about the book ahead of time, because um, Haley doesn't like to just fly by the seat of my of her pants like I do. Uh, she um, had mentioned this, this phrase, emotions are irrelevant, which is used a couple times in the book. So do you want to uh, – Haley, do you want to – prompt that to Derek and then we'll go from there.
2: Yeah. So, um, just in, when you talk about, uh, this, um, you know, asking people about, you know, using these like skills and in the book you did talk, you did say like this, emotions are irrelevant. And so I was just wondering if you could explain a little bit more about that and explain if this is, you know, the track that you were going and what we were just speaking about.
0: Um, emotions are irrelevant in that, um, they aren't going to be germane to the res- uh, to the ultimate goal. They're irrelevant in that they have to be considered and dismissed before you get to your ask or get to your case in chief. Um, and so when I talk about the irrelevancy, I'm talking about um, understanding that uh, emotions are irrelevant to logic. And as long as people are viewing whatever the issue is through that, uh, again, through that emotional prism, you're not going to be able to direct their decision-making until you deal with the emotional aspect as they see it, as it pertains or as it relates to whatever the issue is.
1: Yeah, and it's really fascinating you say this, and again, I think a lot of this just comes down to how we label things and, and where we get our trains of thought, but so many of the of the books that I interview on this um, – Podcast because we're a podcast about language and often we we do things with academia even though I, I kind of straddle both but I a lot of what we talk about is that um, that because bi- you know that that emotion reason binary comes under critique a lot and kind of what I thought you were saying in some of the book was that it's really not about emotion versus reason it's about choosing which emotion because even though you might initially feel fear or you might initially feel panic or you might initially get in that crisis mode that's a choice you have and other cho- other choices of emotions that you could choose are responsibility, accountability, patience. I mean because those are also emotions. And so I'm wondering when I say those things is that what you mean when you say like the rational side or do you actually think that we can that emotions are kind of separate from logic and we can turn off one and activate the other?
0: No, they they're they're completely related. We don't we're there's been studies done. We're not we're not rational beings. We think we are. Uh but by by no stretch of the imagination do we make decisions that don't have an emotional component you know uh uh daniel kahneman wrote uh thinking fast and slow love that book and he said they all of us have a system 1 and system 2 brain right the system 1 is that fast emotional instinctive brain and system 2 is the logical deliberate brain and the problem that most of us have is that we want to deal, uh, we make a choice and say, I want to deal with somebody who's dealing with that system two portion of the brain. The problem is if you deal with the system two portion of the brain without taking into consideration system one, it's the equivalent of trying to, um, it's the equivalent of trying to make an omelet without breaking an egg. And it can't, it can't be done. And depending on the circumstances, um, the difficulty in dealing with the emotions is going, is going to change. But at the end of the day, whenever you get pushback from someone else, whenever somebody gives you a no, or they're showing reluctance or they're show- showing hesitation, it's because they view the situation or you or both as a threat or they're afraid of something and those are negative emotions and if we don't attack those early and o- and often that's all that's going to be bouncing around in their head as you're trying to get them to see your side
2: yeah and this is sort of switching gears but still on that same path so you talk about emotions and logic and a lot of the, or a part of the book was talking about gender and how gender plays a role in um, leadership and this negotiation challenge. And so, can you tell us a little bit about um, how, you know, emotions and logic are relevant in terms of gender and how you can deal with um, that depending on, on your specific gender?
0: Um, I find that, in my, in my experience, women have a predisposition for engaging in in tactical empathy um above and beyond what most men do the majority of i had 15 people on my team at one point and half of those were women and of the best negotiators on the team they were all women i didn't that's not to say i didn't have competent capable Male negotiators, but I can tell you right now that if if Al Qaeda came to the city and they took the nuns at Saint Rita's Church into the rectory and held them hostage, it was it would be one of those three women that would be put on the phone as the primary because they were just that good. And um, I have found that um, women are less afraid to take chances; they're less inclined to question one of the big mantras that we have in in the hostage negotiation world for my team was stick to your training your training is not going to fail you and um the women would take that as as gospel and go out and apply it because that's what the training said to do where the some of the men were very hesitant and i think they were afraid of embarrassment if they failed and that and, and the women didn't seem to have that same um, same concern. Now there's there there there's studies and science and research out there that will go deeper into why that may be the case. But that was the point I was trying to drive home um, in the book that there's a clear, from my perspective and experiences, a clear uh, delineation in how tactical entity is employed based on the gender.
1: So then, is this primarily so what? what are the strategies then for women to use it cuz cuz what what you're not saying then is women are just good at tactile empathy and so they're good do you, do you see anything coming from sort of is there a negative externality to the fact that they do have a natural tendency to do this
0: i don't i don't see anything ne- negative huh. about it what's negative is 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 um, what society has said about men and women and as a result um there may be some hesitation to exercise this uh, on the part of some women because um, they may be concerned about how they're being viewed. And at the end of the day, how they're being viewed is is irrelevant. If they're employing the skills, they're taking themselves off the table um, as as a threat. Now, they're going to be people that have their, their, their Preconceptions and 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 lob ad hominem attacks, but that should not be enough to hold you back from using the skills and getting what you want. And I I don't think that the the women from my past on my team are any different than any other woman walking the planet today. It's just a matter of of exercising mind over matter. And if and if you don't mind, it shouldn't matter.
1: It's a it's a terrific. I, th- I think without being overly apologetic or trying to use too much um, justification, I think it's a nuanced look at how gender differences do play into these things, but not in ways that determine that some people can do X and some people can do Y, but just rather that we have to be aware that there's so many factors driving how this is going to work out, depending on gender, that we can't just presume from the outset that um, that some people aren't going to be able to do things just because of what we've been told.
0: Right. Exactly. Exactly. And in that example I gave you with Al-Qaeda and the, and the Catholic Church, there are some people that are saying, ah, there's no way I would put a woman on the phone with the terrorists from, from that part of the world because of their view of women. Well, I beg to differ. You can either do it or you can't. And the ones that, that, that have shown me um, that they possess the skill set have demonstrated that they can do it. And so translate that to the business world. Um, preconceptions and stereotypes be damned. Get versed in the skills and go out and apply it, whether you're a man or a woman, and you are going to see your proficiency level increase, your productivity increase, the environment that you're going to create for your downliners and and your subordinates is going to be one of, of motivation and respect and you're going to turn those people into high performers simply because you created an environment where they can feel included, where they feel like they trust you. They feel like they're, that you're transparent and you're, and you've got their best interests at heart. And it all starts with subordinating yourself and, and looking at the world as they would see it.
2: And I, I think that that's some really, really great advice, um, just also, just to switch gears again, so we're, we're coming up on, on around 45 minutes, so um, I just wanted to ask, like, for the people listening today, just um, if, you know, if these are the, the top three things that they're going to take away, um, what would you say are the top three things that, that people listening today can do to become more successful leaders using these hostage, hostage negotiation leadership strategies in their own lives?
0: Uh, First and foremost, as I mentioned when we started the call, it's not about you. Stop stop thinking it is. Put your aspirations and the mission of the organization on the back burner and understand that any time that you engage peers or direct reports, Especially when you're engaging them and you're going to deliver news that they're not likely going to want to hear, make sure that you demonstrate for them that you get it as opposed to pushing on to your objective. Number two, it starts with t- tactical empathy, just starts with listening. Shut your mouth. Most leaders view themselves as a types and they have all the answers and they're infallible. And so therefore they don't need to listen. Everything that you need to learn about what's, what it's going to take to get them to do what you want them to do with a great attitude, they're going to tell you everything that's hindering their performance Everything that's going on in their lives that's impacting how they're functioning at work, they're going to tell you about it if you would just shut the front door. And number three, tactical empathy doesn't mean that you're not going to accomplish anything. It doesn't mean that you're not going to give the order or or give the directive or present them with the news that they're not going to want to hear it doesn't mean that you're a pushover. That's why it's called tactical empathy. It's using specific techniques in a specific manner to demonstrate not only that you recognize their perspective, but you're also articulating it and that demonstrates it back to them.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's um it, it's interesting because it's never fun to read a book that doesn't make you a little bit uncomfortable, and of course it's uncomfortable to to have someone tell you, you know, oh, I want to know more about empathy, blah, blah, blah. And then you say, well, it's not about you. I mean, that makes, that makes you feel some kind of way about that. But I think that's a sign that it's something that we should work on.
0: Yeah. This is not something that's, um, I mean, we're, we're born with, with, with empathy, but culturally uh, as we've grown up, we've been told to keep emotions in check and don't show in your cards and try not to be transparent Um, And so it's hard, especially when you're telling it to a boss and saying, it's not about you. And they're thinking to themselves, I got in the position because it is about me. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And, you know, Simon Sinek said it great. There should be, he said there, how did he say it? He said there should be no demand for his services in 2019. Mm -hmm, And yet there are, there is. Yep. And he went on to say, and it's because, he didn't say tactical empathy, but he said it's because emotional intelligence and empathetic leaders are not the standards in our organizations.
1: No, I mean, it's actually surprising to me that this book hadn't, you're reading this book and it makes so much, I'm reading this book and I'm thinking it's making so much sense and it is shocking that nobody thought to write it before now. It's great it's been written it's just it is, it is it is surprising that this isn't already sort of common knowledge.
0: Yeah, um, and it's it's a, it's a it's a hard concept for people to get their head around. You know, when I first started to talk to people about the application of hostage negotiation skills in the business they were like, "You know, wait a minute. Um I get where you're coming from, but how can what You do, which is use your communication skills to save lives. They apply to my world because the stakes aren't that high. And I'm a, I'm a leader of a large company and I don't get emotional when I make decisions. That's why I am who I am. And that's why I am where I am. And then I ask them, um, if I were to throw $10 on the ground and you pick it up and I tell you that you can split that 10 dollars with another person any way you see fit and if the person accepts you both keep the money if the person doesn't accept neither one of you get anything
1: mhm right what do you
0: think that what do you think this the the normal split i hear is
1: oh gosh is this the is this no this isn't the prisoners dilemma right that's the other thing this is a different I've, I've... but
0: it you're right. It's it's akin to the prisoner's. Yeah, door. I'm
1: all, I'm so bad at these. I always I always give the answer that like makes me turn out to be an asshole. Um, I don't know. What do you think, Haley? You want to guess this one? <sighs> Haley would give away way more than me because she's a more empathetic person. She practices I, it more.
2: Yeah, but I'd be worried. I'd be worried. I wouldn't get to give I the know, money either. F- 50-50 because yeah. that's
1: that's the default.
0: And, and why is that the default?
1: Because it makes you think that uh, now everything's even, so that's the best possible outcome because it's halfway.
0: Yeah, it's fair. Right.
1: Well, th- in theory, right? If if is... If ha- yeah, right. If 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 all of the things being equal, fifty fifty would be fair. But of course, there's a disadvantage structure behind this in some way, right?
0: Well, the disadvantage, the disadvantage behind all of this is emotion.
1: Uh huh. Yeah.
0: Fairness is a, is the mo- is an emotional concept. Most acceptors in that in that predicament, anything anything less than four six, the acceptors will kill it. They'll kill the deal. They would rather punish the person who found the money, as opposed to making themselves whole. Because the only logical split for the acceptor to take is a 9-1 split. Because walking away with something is always better than walking away with nothing. However, they don't view it as fair. And if they don't view it as fair, they will kill the deal because they get more satisfaction out of punishing someone than making themselves whole. And that is an emotional reaction. And so when I tell the CEO that I said, that's you getting emotional about $10 that didn't even belong to you. So are you telling me that when $10 million is hanging in the balance, you're not emotional? It's not true. Mm,
1: yeah, exactly. Right. Um, also, you know, I always tell people your, your feelings are a choice. And so if you're going to feel some kind of way about a, a, a 10% split, I mean, that ultimately, it's not the split that made you feel that way. It's your choice to feel that way.
0: Yeah, because it's ingrained in us that fairness when we view fairness, um, and someone is being unfair against us, it's, it's an affront to our self-image. Right. Yeah. And that's one thing that we will go to the grave fighting mm. for is our self-image. All that is to, is tied to those innate human nature responses that all of us have.
1: Mm-hmm. Well,
0: if minute- I were to tell you that you, I'm sorry, but if I were to tell you that you're being unfair about something. Immediately inside, you would cringe a little bit.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Somebody told me I was being unfair literally right before I walked in this office. Haley witnessed it, and it did not feel good. <laughs> it did. <laughs> yeah, my brother always says, fair only comes to town once a year, which I always think is really hilarious. Um, but, but yeah, but this is a good segue because as we were, you know, we're at time, but also um, you had agreed to maybe give Haley a little bit of, of job advice, um, which which is great for me because – you know, I've been out of the industry for, for 10 years at this point, so I'm not I always want to make sure that how I'm thinking about things is right. And Haley's been offered two offers, offered two offers, has been extended two offers at two different positions doing the kind of content, social media, marketing kind of thing that she would like to do after college. And um, she told me about the one job, and then she told me about the other job, which she doesn't like the one job as much, but it has a higher commission than the job that she'd rather have. And I said, Well, why don't you just take the higher commission job offer to the other job and say, this is what I got on the table from this other place. Can you match it? And she looked at me like I had five heads. Mm. Right. And so then my instinct, and this was really interesting because I hadn't thought about this, was to say, well, what if you split the difference and say, well, your your commission is 5% and theirs is 30%. So what if you give me 20, right? It was to me in the middle because fairness But honestly, I think my advice might now be just ask for the whole thing. I mean, if they want to say no, you can. But yeah, but so I don't know. I thought I'd kick it over to Haley and maybe you could uh, counsel Haley for our last few minutes of the call and make it about her,
2: uh, (laughs) not
1: about me.
0: Yeah. Okay, Haley, do you want to add anything to that?
2: Uh, Yeah. So, well... Basically, um, I have these these two offers right now and and I think Lee was pretty correct in saying that I, I looked at her like she was crazy when she told me to sort of use this as leverage in my other position. And um, I think in reading this book, you know it, it is it's sort of a an interesting way to look at negotiations. So any advice you have on that front.
0: So if I understand you correctly, it sounds like there's 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 one company that you really want to work for, but it's a it's a it's a low percentage. And there's another company not so thrilled about, but the percentage is is considerably higher. All right. So. When you go in. To the the job that you like the best and you want to present them with what this other company has offered you, um, How do you think they're going to view you before you even open your mouth? What are the negative opinions, assumptions, and impressions that they're going to have about you when they hear your message?
1: You should see how nervous Haley is right now. I love this so much.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I guess I would just think that they, you know, that they would think that I'm asking too much, that that I think way too highly of myself.
0: Okay, so. When you are asking too much, what does that translate to in people's uh, primal mind? Um, you're being greedy.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: You haven't proven yourself. You, you think your S doesn't stink. Et <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. And so to start that conversation, you're going to throw all of that out on the table.
2: Oh, okay. That's interesting because it's something that I, I wouldn't normally do.
0: You're going to thank them. You're going to say, Thank you for agreeing to, to, to meet with me this afternoon. Look, uh, I know you guys are going to think that I'm being greedy. I know that you're going to think that I'm unproven. Um, you may not think that I have enough experience in my past to do the job that you're asking me to do. You probably think I'm naive. And you probably think that this is just another young kid out to get more than they're worth. And at any point during this conversation, um, you think what I'm saying is unfair. I want you to stop me. We're going to rewind the conversation back to where the unfairness began. And we're going to start all over because that is not my intent.
1: Mm -hmm. Hot damn. (laughs) There you go.
0: And then, then then, Haley, I want you to ask them the why question. Mm Mm-hmm wanna know you want to know what the why question is? Yeah. The why question is why are you guys considering hiring me to begin with? Oh my god, Haley.
2: <laughs> Your face right now. Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing. It's stuff that I under, like I understand the like how it could be so useful. But you're right. It's uncomfortable.
0: It That's right.
2: But I guess that that's, that's right. a good thing.
0: That, that, that discomfort is going to prevent you from executing. Yeah. And if it yeah. prevents you from executing, um, it's going to prevent you from getting the money that you deserve. Yeah. So think to yourself before you go in there, if I don't do what Derek told me to do, what's it <laughs> going to cost me?
1: <laughs> is, it, is it you publicly shaming her? Because that would be amazing.
0: <laughs> no, it, it won't be me publicly shaming her. It'll be her not getting what she's worth. Yeah, no, I'm, yeah, obviously
1: I don't want Haley to be publicly (laughs) shamed.
0: So I I would never publicly shame, but you ask that why question and you get them to state your value proposition before you ever have to say anything.
2: Yeah. I mean, because because
0: there's a reason why you're being interviewed. There's a reason why they're talking to you.
1: Yeah. And that's my feeling as well. Of course, I'm on the outside telling her she's great and they want her and she's on the inside going. And I think the fear here is they retract the offer. I think that's her fear is that they think she's pushy. They retract the offer, right? But of course, this is the negotiation. You don't go into it without some risk. That's, otherwise, you wouldn't have a negotiation. You'd just have a a handover.
0: And, and more importantly, it's all about the delivery. Oh, yeah. You'll be surprised what people agree to uh, in a negotiation, even if it's a salary negotiation, right? People in any negotiation, people remember the most intense moment and they remember how they felt at the end of it be concerned with the last impression. The last impression is the lasting impression. People get so caught off on first impressions. First impressions are okay, but you got seven seconds to make a first impression mm. and people have made up their mind about you. That last impression is the one that stays around forever.
1: Mm. Well, and I don't know if you meant to do this, but that was a hell of a last impression because we are perfectly timed now to make that joke and wrap up the podcast so i just want to say this has been illuminating derek i really hope i get to see you live at some point do you have any plans to come to rochester or new york city anytime soon
0: uh we will be in new york on uh we're doing a live event on may 17th and i think we've got another hit in new york later in, after after the summer um
1: Awesome. I will um, look up those schedules and put it in the show notes along with the link to the book. So if anyone at home – because I'm definitely interested. I'd love to come see you live and see what this looks like um, when you're running a show about it.
0: Yeah, that would be cool. Love to have you there.
1: Terrific. Well, Haley, why don't you do one last plug for the book and thank our author so that I can feel like I've done my job for the day. And then we'll let uh, Derek go and the listeners uh, go on to do other things.
2: Yeah, so um, this has been great. Thank you so much, Derek. I really love the book. Um, The book is called Ego Authority Failure using emotional intelligence like a hostage negotiator to succeed as a leader. And again, thank you so much, Derek. This has been awesome.
0: Thank you. I appreciate it, guys. Take care. Yeah, you too.